The New York Times says that Trump only paid $750 in income taxes the year he was elected president. Mariah Carey secretly put out a rock album in the 90s. And the BuzzFeed News podcast, Suspicious Activity, delves into why big banks did nothing to stop criminals from sending billions of dollars around the world. Azeem Goreshi and Anthony Cormier are here to tell us all about it. The date, September 28th, 2020. The time, News O'Clock. Hey, everyone. I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Casey, I am. It's a Monday, all right. I am. I. I had a struggle bus to get through to the through the morning this day, but I'm very glad that we actually are here doing the show because I kind of missed it over the weekend. I'm not gonna lie. I did too. I'm also not sure if I'm supposed to like share this with the public or if my mom will like text me and be like, Casey, but I'm wearing <gasps> the same dress three days in a row, and I continue to wear, and I plan to wear it again tomorrow. <laughs> so that is where I'm at. <laughs> you know what? We've all we've all got our different places in our brains at this point. Like, yeah, I, I can't I can't fault you for that at all. <laughs> okay, time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. The New York Times this weekend reported that President Donald Trump paid just $750 in income taxes the year he was elected president. He paid the same amount in 2017. And in 10 of the previous 15 years, he paid no income taxes at all. And he managed that by claiming to lose far more money than he made in each of those years. That's the major takeaway from this huge report, which the Times says is just the first of many to come. Trump's tax returns have been a target for the last five years, with the president constantly refusing to release them. But now, the newspaper says it has been looking at 18 years worth of filings from Donald Trump, many of them leaving even more questions than they answer. One thing we did learn, though, turns out he actually is under audit from the IRS for $72.9 million tax return in 2010. If it turns out that the refund wasn't appropriate, Trump could owe up to $100 million to the IRS. And even more worrisome is the fact that Trump currently has about $420 million in loans that he's personally responsible for coming due within the next four years a.k.a. during any potential second term. Forbes' Trump reporter Dan Alexander says that, yes, Trump is still a billionaire on paper, given the properties he owns. That is not what's under debate here from this New York Times report. But that just makes his financial sleight of hand even more pernicious as he seemingly found every loophole possible to keep from paying taxes. That includes, among many other things, apparently writing off $700,000 in consulting fees to his daughter Ivanka. Ivanka was at the time actually running two Trump-owned properties, so hard to see how she counts as a consultant. Also, this weekend, Trump named his third nominee to the Supreme Court, federal judge Amy Coney Barrett. For a quick refresher, here's what BuzzFeed News court reporter Zoe Tillman told us about Barrett last week. Judge Barrett was a law professor before she became a judge on the Seventh Circuit in 2017. She, you know, had a, a long, distinguished career as an academic. But what Democrats and liberal groups have really gotten up in arms about with her is that she is publicly and deeply anti-abortion. And that was an issue when she came up for the Seventh Circuit. It will be an issue if she is the nominee, you know, to the extent this nomination fight is about abortion. That's what the administration is going to get if they nominate Judge Barrett. 
At the White House on Saturday, Trump praised the 48-year-old, calling her, quote, a woman of unparalleled achievement, towering intellect, sterling credentials, and unyielding loyalty to the Constitution. If you want to get a better idea for how Barrett's ruled since joining the Seventh Circuit, you can read all about it on BuzzFeedNews.com. We'll put a link in today's show notes. Meanwhile, the normally glacial pace of the Senate is all set to move into hyperspeed on this nomination. According to Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham, there will be four days of hearings starting on October 12th. That's just two weeks from now, which is not a lot of time to read up on Barrett's writings over the years. The Supreme Court is said to be one of six major topics that Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden will talk about tomorrow at their first debate. Woo! Okay, so I got some things to say, and it's mostly based off of this tweet that I saw that Democrats are privately fearing that if they go too hard in on Judge Amy Coney Barrett, that they're going to be perceived as being nasty to an accomplished woman. And I just want to say that isn't how morality works. It doesn't differentiate between genders. Um, And they should be going in hard on her. She... This is the time to do that. And I think there's this difference of like, they don't want to deem like they're ragging on a woman or pitting uh, like against her. And I'm like, no, that's what Republicans have done to AOC when they Mm. when they shit on her two hundred and fifty dollar haircut. And I also don't see them coming at Trump for spending 70 K on his hair. So. It's just the situation here. There's a difference. If you're going to be going out and calling her shrill, then yes, you don't want to be nasty that way. But if you're just going after her politics and what she stands for and against, please be my guest and do that. That is the point of this whole process. Casey, do you want to take over for Aaron Sorkin? Because that was like a hell of an off-the-cuff speech right there. That was like wowzers. Okay. Uh, But no, I I see entirely what you mean politically. Like four days of hearings this fast, it's kind of bonkers that we are going to really just push this through right before an election. People are already voting is a point that's been made several times. Like votes are being cast at this moment for who is going to be the next president. So this lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court for it to be like decided this quickly in the Senate, absolutely bonkerballs. And and I just want to point out, you noted that seventy thousand dollar write off for hair that was part of Trump's taxes during the Apprentice. It's really interesting what he did. So according to the Times, he was hella broke for a minute there, and he leverages debt in such a way that he always manages to not really have more money coming in than going out, so he doesn't have to pay any taxes on it. He didn't manage that during the first couple years of The Apprentice, when he was actually getting money for a change, money just pouring in as profit, and so he did pay a bunch of taxes in those years. Then he started buying properties, leveraging debt again, and taking as many, you know, deductions as he could, including writing off that $70,000 for hair while being on The Apprentice. And it's it's just ba- it's just wild that you can be this rich and get to keep that much money by playing this game so well. And, you know, I saw one attack on Twitter that was like, oh, well, if you're going after Trump for all of this, then you need to be going after Obama and Biden and other people who wrote these tax codes, which could be fair if the Republicans hadn't completely overhauled the tax system. And that's one of like their primary achievements for the first two years of Trump's administration. They rewrote the tax laws and did not change any of those things. 
Wait, okay, also because you brought up The Apprentice, that is something that does like, that I like heard recently with, because you know how he's so obsessed with TV ratings? Is that The Apprentice actually didn't have great TV ratings and it was just because uh, of the like, kind of like ad sales they were bringing in because of the synergy of the companies and products that they were featuring on the show. And I just like, I think that's fascinating. <laughs> it was the Jack Donaghy period of synergy for NBC Universal, that is true. <laughs> exactly. The, Comcast, NBC Universal, uh, the microwave <laughs> television, et cetera. So that makes sense. Synergy is one of the funniest concepts in business to me, and it always has been, always will be. I will point out anytime ABC puts on something on with Disney, anytime a Universal or something comes on with NBC, I will gladly point it out. Yes. Anytime I see a cereal box or something that's owned by like some company, I'll just shout synergy <laughs> in the TV. Yes. Okay. Shifting gears, Casey, what is going on with pop culture today? Well, first, Chrissy Teigen is in the hospital for complications with her third pregnancy, which have caused her to, quote, never stopping bleeding. Teigen and her husband, John Legend, announced their third pregnancy last month. It was a bit of a surprise for them since their first two kids had been conceived via in vitro fertilization. But she's been open about the fact that this time around, it hasn't been easy for her. Last week, she said that due to a weak placenta, she'd been placed on full bed rest. But Tegan said on Instagram that over the weekend, things got worse. You know, I'm about like halfway through pregnancy and um, uh, the blood has been going on for like a month. So like may maybe a little bit less than a month, but we're talking like more than your period, girls. Um, and definitely not spotting. A lot of people spot and it's usually fine. She described it as, quote, when you turn on a faucet on low and just leave it. Luckily, the baby is still doing fine for now, but Tegan added that it's really scary to not be able to really do much of anything while this is happening. She did, though, ask that people stop trying to diagnose her on Twitter and Instagram. It's not really helping. I would imagine not. She has doctors, good ones, I bet. Yes, definitely, but I am sure everyone and their mother is giving her suggestions. Um... Uh, yeah, I will say I have thought a, a lot about um, people who are pregnant during the pandemic and how difficult that must be. And especially if you're on bed rest, it's just you're losing control of your body, your life in that situation. And so I definitely empathize with the situation that she's going through. Right. And I shout out to her for speaking up about it. I feel like even like maybe a decade ago, people be like, oh, gross, you're talking about blood. Why are we doing this? And I'm really glad that's not the case anymore. I'm really glad that she feels the ability to talk about this because this is something that happens. It happens to women who are pregnant and it is very scary. And I feel like so many women out there in years past have been like unaware that this is something that can occur. That is something that uh, that other people go through. And so if it does happen to them, they feel even more scared. Yeah, I'm definitely a proponent of that. I love when women talk uh, about period blood in a public setting because I think it's important. And something that's like happened in, um, in my team at work is that, you know, usually when we're letting each other know, like, oh, I need to sign off early, I have a headache or something like that. We've the women on the team have started to say, like, oh, I have very bad cramps. I need to step away. And I think that's like really important, whether men are in, on your team or not, just to be like, hey, this is a pain that I'm feeling and I'm going to express it. It is real. It hurts. And I have gone through nothing like it in my life. Thank God. <laughs> Okay, moving on. It turns out that Mariah Carey may secretly have been the vocalist of a rock band back in the 90s. The, the pop legend has a new memoir out, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, which I think is the most perfect name. And 
on Sunday, she tweeted an excerpt from it saying that she'd actually been working on an alternative album while recording Daydreams back in 1995. It was, quote, just for laughs, but it got me through some dark days. So here's a sample of what the band called Chick sounded like. This is their track Malibu from the album Someone's Ugly Daughter. You know, I think you're kind of stupid. Why can't you get it through your big fat head? I hate you. I hate you. I wish you were dead. According to Pitchfork, Carrie's representative says she wrote, produced, and sang background vocals on every song on the album. And Carrie may have been hinting at the album in an interview with the Las Vegas Review Journal in 2015. She said, quote, Actually, I did have an album that will remain unsung, darling. It was a secret album that I have that nobody knows about. You would be getting a good scoop on that. Listen to her drop the clues. Mr. Las Vegas Review Journal, you had all the clues. <laughs> I love this. You know what? I, I, I love any realm that she enters in terms of music. I support her. <laughs> I, I really like that she did this because she felt like she couldn't express how like her actual feelings through her pop music and so she took turned to like alt music and where women could be angry and just draw into the microphone about things and I, i'm glad she found that outlet i wish we had known about it sooner to be honest oh most definitely and then i would play it back to back with her christmas album oh my god <laughs> <laughs> what a vibe that would be <laughs> All I want for Christmas is to be emo by Mariah Carey. <laughs> All right. When we come back, we've got BuzzFeed News' Anthony Cormier and Zine Goreshi to talk about suspicious activity, a new podcast diving into all the crimes that banks have been apparently ignoring. Stay right there. Fit. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com/slash 2022. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. Welcome back. This may come as a bit of a shock to you listeners, but it turns out a lot of crime happens around the world on the regular. Criminals need a way to move that money around, so they turn to some of the world's biggest banks. 
a giant trove of files obtained by BuzzFeed News called the FinCEN files show just how much money gets shuffled around and how much the banks know about what's going on. We're joined by Anthony Cormier, an investigative reporter with BuzzFeed News, and Azeen Goreshi, BuzzFeed News science editor and host of the Suspicious Activity podcast. Good afternoon to both of you. Hi, Hayes. Hi, Hayes. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Okay, so this is just a huge story. For our listeners, here's how Azeen got reporter Jason Leopold to describe the project on the first episode of the Suspicious Activity podcast. This is a story that's actually been almost three years in the making, and it relies heavily on documents that shows us that oligarchs, drug kingpins, terrorists, and prominent officials have been engaged in what appears to be a years-long effort to launder money all across the globe. So, Azeen, let's start with you. What can you tell us about the FinCEN files broadly? Where do they come from? So, yeah, I'm I'm joined by the best person to answer that question, Anthony Cormier, but um, we actually, I think I can speak for Anthony when I say, you know, we, we really can't talk about um, how BuzzFeed News got access to these documents, um, but they are incredibly, incredibly secret documents, um, you know, haven't really, for the most part, seen the light of day before this project. Um, and they offer really an unprecedented look into um, financial transactions that are happening constantly, uh, that banks that are anywhere from suspicious to criminal, that banks are aware of, that they flag to the U.S. government, um, and that you know, just sort of sit there um, without the banks doing much about it, the banks or the U.S. government doing much about it. And I'm sure Anthony can do a better job of it, answering that question as well. So, Anthony, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, you did pretty well, just like you did on the podcast, Azine. You know the story <laughs> like the back of your hand. So how much money are we talking about being moved around here, you guys? About $2 trillion. Uh, this oh, is, is that all? Yeah, with a, with a T is our colleague Jeremy Singer-Vine says in his wonderful data story. Yeah, this is about $2 trillion that the banks have flagged themselves as suspicious. They've, uh, these are, you know, wire transfers, cash payments, you know, remits, checks. These are all kinds of transactions that flow across the globe over a period of about a decade. And it's what the bank describes as suspicious. That's why they're called suspicious activity reports. They send these reports to the government uh, and it creates a system where, rather strangely, y- y- you know, they become sort of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, I think, in my opinion, is you can file a SAR on a customer. You do not have to leave that customer. You can continue with them, you know, as uh, banking with them. And as long as you tell the government, the financial institutions, the banks themselves, can't actually get in trouble, which creates this sort of w- unusual system of, of law enforcement, of, in- of financial intelligence. Anthony, you've worked on some big stories before, including looking at how money flowed around the Trump organization ahead of the 2016 election. What makes this one different? I don't think it's different so much as it's just an extension of the remit that my reporting partner, Jason Leopold, and I have had since we got to BuzzFeed News, right? I mean, my second day here was when BuzzFeed News published the dossier. We had to find a way into this uh, very, you know, unusual administration. And what Jason and I did from the beginning was follow the money. We've, we looked at the building of the Trump Tower uh, Moscow during the campaign. We looked at transactions that were flagged as suspicious by some of his, excuse me, the, some of the candidate Trump's uh, partners and associates. And this feels like the next sort of step in that evolution. We, we looked locally at the U.S. administration, and now we've got this window into 
a really rare uh, world uh, of global finance. The FinCEN files were shared with and reported on by over 100 newsrooms. What was it like working with so many newsrooms to coordinate all of this? Was there ever a time when you were like dibs and had to fight over a story with someone else? No, I thought actually the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists were really quite brilliant. I mean, obviously, we can't speak to all of the sort of reporters that went on behind the scenes, but they were really remarkable partners, as are the, the local newsrooms that they work with around the globe. And it was just so encouraging to see the way entities who who normally don't have access, of course, no one would, but normally don't have the sort of oomph behind their reporting to be able to go to a local oligarch, a local politician, a local corporation, you know, and, and be able to ask them really important questions that the public deserves to know. I think we saw it from Ritu Saran in India to the BBC in London. I mean, they were able to take this enormous sort of suite of records and use them to their fullest. And that's, I think that's the antithesis. I mean, sometimes reporters are you know, very protective of their own work and their own scoops and they don't like to share. But I think what BuzzFeed News and ICIJ set out to do and accomplished was to make these as widely available as, as, as we possibly could, because that's their highest and, and best use. Yeah, I feel like from my perspective that I saw of this collaboration, it was it's really kind of a paradigm shift of how reporting works. Like every every, there was so much sharing happen happening at all times about, you know, what leads people were chasing down to like memos to like full stories. And and it's it, it just made it really clear that the end goal, there was just this big, enormous shared interest in getting this story out there. Um, and that includes keeping, you know, the the whole project a secret among 400 reporters. Or right, Anthony, that's how many were were included in the end. And yeah, yeah, 400 reporters in 80, 88 countries. Yeah, and like all 400 of those reporters needed this to be a secret until you know the 20th of September when everything um, became public. Wow. Okay. So, so Anthony, these companies flag this activity to the U.S. government, and then apparently not much happens, I guess, since we're talking about them right now. Do, do the banks or anyone else actually investigate these suspicious activity reports once they're filed? Sure, they they do in some cases. I think you would you would if you ask law enforcement officers, you know, FBI agents, DEA agents, IRS officials, they 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 do use them. They do find them to be uh, very handy tools. But it's it's you've got to we've got access to about twenty one hundred of these, and last year alone the banks filed two million. And so what we've heard is that the the the, the entity that that accepts them it's called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It's run under uh, the Treasury Department. They simply don't have the staff to read every one of these reports. I mean, I don't think that anyone expects them to. So you've got these banks that are just sort of flooding the system and overwhelming what law enforcement um, can actually examine. Now, all this reporting, it's the kind of stuff where it's clearly important, but it all can be really dense and kind of hard to understand. So um, what's the takeaway that you're really hoping to leave people with who read these stories and listen to this podcast? Right. I think what, what, what you know, really it's a credit to Ariel Kaminer, who's investigations editor, and, um, you know, to some extent, Heidi Blake before her and Mark Schoofs, of course, and even, even Ben, you know, from the, Ben Smith from the the beginning, I think what we've always tried to do is to show that there is real world harm and misery on the end of, you know, suspicious transactions, that they cause, you know, real pain to human beings. And the flip side of that system is, is that there's very little enforcement of, 
you know, the banks of these monster financial institutions, they don't face the same justice system that marginalized communities in the United States do, right? You know, they, they get a, they get a deferred prosecution agreement. You know, they, they pay a fine. That's just a, you know, a few day, a few, a few days of, of profits for them where black and brown people are going to prison over dime bags. I mean, like, and they have historically been doing this and, there is this alternate justice system for these mega corporations, and we hope that our stories sort of shine some light on on the way that works. Well, well, Anthony, out of the stories published so far, emphasis on the ones that have been published so far by BuzzFeed News and other outlets, what would you say is the one that most left you going, this is absolutely crazy? <laughs> it's all absolutely crazy. Uh, I don't think there's a single one. I'm going to give you a terrible politic, you know, politician's answer here. <laughs> um I, they're all my children and I love them equally. Uh, okay. I, think, I think though the sweep of it, the enormity was most surprising to me was the way that it, it just sort of traversed the globe, the way that so many partners everywhere, 400 reporters in 88 countries. I think there've been almost you know 400 stories so far, like the way that this took hold elsewhere. And for me to watch it in different parts of the globe was really astounding. And Again, company line here. I'm very proud that, uh, that that our organization, that BuzzFeed News, could be a part of that. I really, it says a lot to me about what we are and who we're about and what's in our DNA that we, you know, that we help to bring that out. So, um, Azine, if our listeners want to hear the podcast, where should they go to listen? Great question. Uh, anyone who wants to listen to the podcast can find it on uh, Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's literally everywhere. So, <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us tomorrow when we're talking with Amara Jones, the host of the new Translash podcast. And remember, I don't have any shame about wearing the same dress three days in a row, and neither should you. I will keep that in mind, Casey. All right, be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. If dog people made dog food, it wouldn't be sold in a 50-pound bag in the hardware aisle by the shoe polish. It would actually be food. It would be made with real, fresh meat and veggies gently cooked to preserve their nutritional value. You know, like food. The Farmer's Dog was created by dog people who cook and deliver fresh, healthy food. Try the Farmer's Dog and get fresh, pre-portioned meals tailored to your dog's needs. Tell us about your dog, build your plan, and get 50% off at thefarmersdog.com slash listen. That's thefarmersdog.com slash listen. Mama, what does the chicken say? Uh, dog. Cat. Giraffe. Giraffe, really? Giraffe. Uh, giraffe. You're not going to get it all right. Just make sure you nail the big stuff, like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Get it right. Visit NHTSA.gov. Slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I'm Jake Halpern host of Deep Cover. Our new season is about a lawyer who helped the mob run Chicago. He bribed judges and even helped a hitman walk free until one day when he started talking with the FBI 
and promised that he could take the mob down. I've spent the past year trying to figure out why he flipped and what he was really after. Listen to Deep Cover on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.